Thanks, Dana and Quinn. Again, good morning. Y'all recovered? Recovering from the new year? My kids start, I think, on Tuesday. So we have one more day of chaos and then back to normal. And I need routine. I'm a creature of habit. So um, speaking of routine, we're going to return to the book of Acts today. If, uh, if you're visiting or if you're fairly new to CPC, we began a sermon series in Acts at the beginning of last year, the beginning of 2019, and I truly believed that we would get through it in a year. Um, but in the same way that I managed to squeeze four years of college into five and a half, I uh, found a way to squeeze a year-long sermon into 14 months. So, so we'll, we'll go through um, February probably with this. You may have forgotten where Acts is, so find that blank page between the Old Testament and New Testament. And then turn five books to the right. Or you can take a shortcut and go to page 933 in the Pew Bible. That's where you'll find today's passage. We're going to look at Acts chapter 24. The entire chapter. It's not a terribly long chapter, but um, we do have to take it together. So we're going to look at Acts 24 this morning. Before we do that, um, it's been a month or so since we've been in Acts. We've all slept since then. We've had... Um, the season of Advent, Christmas, New Year. Um, and so let me take just a moment to, to sort of bring us all up to speed. In chapter 21, uh, Paul journeyed from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem. And that trip to Jerusalem, uh, in many ways, marked the beginning of the end for Paul's life. Uh, he's, his life will continue for three more years, but he'll spend much of that three years in prison. In fact, just uh, for context, um, we're going to read chapter 24 today, and at the end of chapter 24, there's a two-year gap. We're going to see that Felix left him in prison for two more years, and and so in that blank space between chapter 24 and 25, two years pass, but three years remaining in Paul's life, um, it's the beginning of the end, and while Paul was in Jerusalem, um, the Jews hatched a plan to kill him. Uh, In fact, they took an oath that they would not eat or drink until he was dead. And that's that's a pretty serious commitment. Um, You've got to be filled with a lot of hatred to make a vow like that. And we see that the Jews had no problem um, murdering Paul, but they knew they couldn't just murder him without cause. You'll remember from many weeks ago that that Paul disclosed he was also a Roman citizen. He had dual citizenship. And because he was a Roman citizen, the Jews had to create false charges and get the Romans involved. And and this may resonate with you. What happens during this time in Paul's life very closely mirrors what happened with Jesus. The Jews wanted Jesus dead. And, And so they trumped up false charges against him and they got the Romans to do their dirty work. Something very similar happens here with Paul. Um, The Jews wanted him dead, and so they bring false charges against him, and they get the Romans involved. And then in the middle of chapter 23, Paul was transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea, about a 55-mile journey away. And in Caesarea, he was uh, confined in Herod's palace, and that's where we left off back in November, right? He was left in house arrest in Herod's palace, and when we left off, Paul was in prison, and that's where we find him this morning. So let's pray. And then we'll read chapter 24. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. 
Uh, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, that's my great confidence. Um, the, the Advent season, the Christmas season is, uh, is so different in the, the church calendar and the life of the church. Uh, people come um, for the first time and, uh, and our, our focus is on the incarnation and then looking past the incarnation to the second coming. But it's this routine that we get into that's healthy and, and good, this rhythm. Just coming to your word, reading it for what it is, and trusting that you'll work. And that's my hope today. Lord, you know my mind is in a, a many different places this morning. I feel a bit out of practice, um, having been out last week and out so many weeks. Um, so, Lord, my confidence, and I pray these folks' confidence, will not be in my eloquence or ability, um, but, Lord, your spirit. That the spirit would go before the reading and preaching of the word to enlighten um, our minds, to give us receptive hearts, to break down any barriers that we might have to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we might see Jesus afresh this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen. Actually, let's, um, let's pick up at the end of verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 35. And uh, the emperor said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man, now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. 
But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. May God write his word upon our hearts. There's a lot here, and there are many approaches to this passage that we could take. But what I want to do this morning is focus on the similarities between Paul's situation and ours. Where do we see um, our life looking similar to Paul's? If we are faithfully walking with Christ, we will find ourselves caught in the middle between two kingdoms. At this very moment, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world who are truly being persecuted. There are hundreds of thousands of Christians at this very moment risking their lives. And, and I think sometimes that we need to acknowledge how good we have it here in the United States. So I don't want to over, I never want to overstate the level of persecution that we face as Christians here in a free country. That would be false to sort of overstate how good we have it or to oversell what may happen. And, and I think we have to be honest with ourselves and with our world that being forced to bake a cake is not the same as being beheaded. So let's be careful that we don't jump on the woe is, train, woe is me train too fast. So our situation does have similarities with Paul's, but, but Paul's was far more dire. Every Christian in every nation and every generation will face trials. We will all face tribulation. We will all face persecution. Jesus promised that in John 16. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. But of course, be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. He didn't say you may have it. You didn't say it could come. He said, you will. You'll face this. But it would be false of us to say that our situation is exactly the same as many Christians around the world or the same as Paul's. But we do have to recognize and we always have to be sober-minded that the world is hostile to the cause of Christ. To be citizens of Christ's kingdom while living as citizens of this nation uh, is, is a difficult and challenging task. And we have to learn, we have to grow to learn to navigate life in this world while being winsome and wise. And, and so before we dive into this passage sort of as a, some preliminary principles. I want to give you three preliminary principles. You might think of them as cultural caveats. What, what does it look like, or, or how should we go about living as Christians in a world that is decidedly not Christian? Just some broad principles. First, 
we mustn't abandon the world. Jesus knows what his followers will face, and he's left us here for a purpose. If, if we were not here for a purpose, then the moment we were converted, the Holy Spirit would transport us to heaven, and that would be the end of it. But God has left us here for a purpose. And there, there are many Christians, and I've met many, who despise this world. They despise life on the earth. They almost view life here as a form of purgatory, just a holding place until we get to heaven. And so they write hymns, really bad hymns, like this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere among the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Terrible Gnostic theology right there. Terrible. Don't sing that song. This world, it's just a smarmy tune anyway, but don't sing the lyrics. They're awful. By the way, this is a side note. Now, I, never, I, I should never do this. Um, when I go off notes, I always get emails. Um, a, a buddy of mine, a PCA pastor who had too much time on his hands, took all of the hymns in the Trinity hymnal, there's like 500 and something, and he categorized them in a bar graph by decade. Right? So the, the church is 2,000 years old, but like 70-something percent of our hymns were written between 1770 and 1870, the, the golden era, apparently, of um, Christian music. Sometimes they're just really bad songs, and we need to move past them. That's a really bad song, but many Christians adopt it as, a, as sort of a life philosophy. This world isn't my home. I'm just here, and I can't wait to get on to the next plane. But friends, this world is our home. God created this world to be our home. And yes, the fall has scarred and marred God's creation, but it didn't change God's plan for us in this world. Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if we despise or if we abandon the world or if we even subtly adopt a quasi-monastic approach to life where we're just going to gather in our holy huddles, have as little to do with the world as possible, then we will fail to reflect God's glory to the world as he's intended. And so, just sort of a cultural caveat, a preliminary principle, we, we can't abandon this world. Don't, don't look at it like that. But here's a second one, sort of counter to that. We must not love the world. We must love people. But John said, do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And so we, we have to learn, and maybe it's a lifelong learning of, of what it looks like to make a home in this fallen world, to find a vocation that glorifies God and serves the common good, to love people and to live as salt and light, to do all of that, but not love the world. And that's hard. It's easy. It's seductive to love the things of this world. But as Christians, there, there should always be a holy discontent with the things of this world. So we don't abandon it, but we also don't give ourselves over to it. And thirdly, we have to live with the tension. Live with the tension of being caught in the middle of being citizens of Christ's kingdom while being citizens of this earthly nation while being salt and light to the world, while not loving the world, 
live with the tension and learn. Learn to, to love this tension. I want to give you permission to enjoy art, to enjoy the cinema, to enjoy good food, and at the same time recognize fundamentally that the systems of this world are in conflict with Christ. We can acknowledge both, that this world is broken, that is, as we sang during, uh, during our Christmas Eve service and we think about Jesus' second coming, no more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. God comes to make in Christ his blessings known, far as the curse is found. There is something about this creation that's still marred and scarred and broken, and at the same time, we can enjoy the things that God has given us to joy. Enjoy. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6 that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so we're in a spiritual battle. We're caught between, and we have to learn to navigate that. And, and so as we, as we consider that, that like Paul, we are, we are captive to Christ, but also being held captive in a sense by this governor, as we are living in this world, but seeking to not love this world, what can we learn from Paul's situation? What can we take away? What opportunities has God given us? Let me give you three thoughts. First of all, flattery will not gain the world's favor. Flattery will not gain the world's favor. Telling people what they want to hear makes a double fool. So this chapter begins, and I've, I've always loved, uh, I've never preached this passage, but I've always wanted to. Um, the chapter begins with this character, Tertullus. He's making a case against Paul before Felix the governor. And, and Tertullus reminds me of um, Polonius from Shakespeare's Hamlet. I had to memorize this passage in high school. Polonius, who's the incarnation of vanity, the incarnation of um, foolishness, says, My liege and madam, to expostulate what majesty should be, why day is day, time is time, and night night, were nothing but to waste both night, day, and time. And so, therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness the flourishes of outward limbs, I will be brief. And you want to say, you're such a suck-up, Tertullus. Just get on with it. And, and that's what I think of when I read this, or Polonius. Just get on with it. My liege and madam, I will be, you know, it goes on this whole rant, I'll be brief. And then look here, Tertullus. Since through you, Governor Felix, we enjoy much peace, and by your foresight, reforms are being made, yada, yada, yada. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. And you want to say, get on with it, Tertullus. And it's such a refreshing contrast when we see Paul, who gets right to the point. He says to, to Felix, knowing that for many years you've been a judge, I'll make my defense. There's no flattery. There's just facts. The Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, and so there's a sense in which this world lacks wisdom. That, that, that the people of this world um, do not possess the wisdom of God, but that doesn't mean that they cannot smell flattery and false faith from a mile away. Wisdom and savvy are different things. Why does Tertullus use flattery? Because his case is flimsy. He has nothing to offer. 
Why does Paul not use flattery and just get right to the point? Because he knows that the faith that he believes in and which he's been preaching is solid. And so as we engage this world and as we engage people of this world, we have a solid faith. Our hope is in Christ. We don't have to use flattery. They can smell that a mile away. I think I've told you about this before, this, this time a handful of years ago when I was asked to pray at this gathering of um, sort of movers and shakers uh, over in Oklahoma City. It was a political rally. And uh, it was during the last presidential primary. It was downtown at the event center in OKC. And there were a lot of big names there. And I, I don't, uh, not to name drop, but yeah, like Marco Rubio, Chris Christie, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina, um, Rick Perry. So I was, I was backstage in the green room um, about to go out and give this invocation. And um, I began to talk to a person who was later appointed to President Trump's cabinet. And obviously I'm a nobody and he's a somebody, so he asked, he's a he, by the way. Uh, he asked me what I do. And I said, well, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And his face kind of had this quizzical look on it, this, this look of um, suspicion. And I wanted to say, no, 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 I'm not that kind of Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> and I also, I also wanted to say, but nor am I a, a, a mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging fundamentalist either. I, I wanted to defend myself. I, I wanted him to think highly of me. I didn't want him to hear that label, Presbyterian pastor, and, and sort of pigeonhole me. I, I wanted him to think well of me. And just for a moment, I understood the seduction of being around people with power. Maybe what Paul battled with, being here before Governor Felix. So he asked me, this, this, this man, he said, what are the faith principles of Presbyterians? I'm not even sure what that means. Faith principles, who talks like that? I didn't know what he meant, but I just started sharing the gospel. I was like, well, we believe the gospel. Um, we're Presbyterian, so we come from the Reformation. If you heard of that, you know, big thing that happened 500 years ago. Um, so I got to kind of backdoor the uh, doctrines of grace in there. And, and so I got, to I got to talk to him about the faith but I have to tell you, I was tempted to substitute for flattery. I was. I, I was very tempted to, to, to not share what we believe and just to kind of gloss over things. And it's so difficult when we're around those with power to be someone who glories in weakness. But flattery would have been a wrong response. And, and by the way, you don't get to be a politician of his magnitude without smelling that kind of baloney. Right? He would have sniffed it out. So as we engage this world, we mustn't, we mustn't use flattery. In contrast to that is authenticity. In contrast to flattery is authenticity. How, how do we live as Christians in a world that is decidedly unchristian? How do we talk to non-believers, the people in our lives, those who are skeptical or perhaps even hostile, authentically? You know, I believe one of the, Christ, one of the reasons that we Christians are, are mocked in the media is quite frankly because too many of our walks don't match our talk. We're pro-life until we're not, until it's convenient. We talk about biblical values and then jettison those values for expediency. James Denny, 
who was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, said, no man, uh, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and at the same time give the impression that Christ is mighty to save. It's got to be one or the other. We can't give the impression that we have something to offer and yet then tell people we're trying to offer Christ. You, you can't give at once the impression that you're clever and also that Christ is mighty to save. Which is it going to be? And so what we see here in Paul is not flattery. It's not false faith. It's authenticity. Authentic lives, authentic speech. Listen, the world may not be drawn through that, but they will certainly be repulsed if we, do, if we substitute authenticity with flattery. And so when we find ourselves in a situation, and, and likely we, we won't find ourselves in an identical situation as Paul finds himself here before Felix under house arrest, two years, all this kind of stuff. But as we find ourselves trying to navigate this, these uh, tricky waters of living in the world, not loving it, but being salt and light to it, and trying to engage people, authenticity, not flattery. Here's a second thought to consider. The best defense is the offense of the gospel. Paul begins defending himself by just going to the facts, people, places, and times. I went here, I did this. That's kind of how his defense opens up um, around verse 10. I went there, I did this, I met so-and-so, and I said that. And then he shifts, he shifts perspectives, and he begins to convince Felix that, that his faith is rooted in the Old Testament, that what he believes is not some, some cultish, he's not part of some cultish sect, but the, the believers, those who follow the way, that, that they're really rooted in the Old Testament. In verse 14, he says, according to the way which the Jews call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with him kind of going on the, the historical route. But notice what verse 22 says. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put him off. Felix understood the basics of Christian faith, the basics of Christian belief. Paul is trying to make a historical argument, and Felix says, look, I get all that. I'm familiar with the Old Testament. I understand what you're saying. Many people have a basic understanding of the Christian faith. In fact, I've only, I've only met, and my good friend Joshua Burdett is here today. He's a pastor in Santa Barbara um, at Christ Presbyterian in Santa Barbara, and uh, we spent some time this week talking. I haven't really asked him about this, but I'd be curious <clears throat> about the, the nature of faith and people's understanding on the, uh, the left coast. Like, what, you know, what's their level of biblical knowledge? But here in the, here in the central part of where I live, right, um, and where I've ministered both in Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama, um, the places where I've spent my life. I've only met a handful of people in my, in, in my life as a pastor that weren't familiar, that, that had no familiarity at all with the Christian faith. Like zero. What, what I mean is, is, is even, even the most unchurched person that, that I typically encounter, they know about the Bible. They've at least heard about Jesus. They have some category for Christmas and Easter. When we lived in Texas, before moving here uh, in the Dallas area, 
My, my son, Cademan, my oldest, made friends with a young boy at their elementary school named Arya. Um, Arya, his family was from Iran. Uh, they're uh, non-practicing non Muslims. But we had them over. We became friends with their family. We had them over for Easter lunch. We, you know, they didn't go to church with us, but we, they were, they were uh, secular Muslims. We invited them over for Easter lunch, and we made a big deal about it. We had a nice feast. The house was decorated with spring flowers. And they were like, do you do this every Sunday? No, this is a special. This is a special Sunday. Why is it special? Because it's Easter. What is this Easter you speak of? Like, not even an Easter bunny category. No category for that. But I've only met one or two people in my life who's ha who had no categories. What we find with Felix is that he had an, he says, a rather accurate knowledge of the way, the Christian faith. And one of the things I think we can take away from that is that many times people need to be met less with content and just more with conviction. In other words, there will be times when we will have to start at square one, where we will have to, to help build categories for people. But I think many times we get too caught up in our shorts with an apologetic strategy and we miss out on, on just letting the gospel do its work. So notice what happens in verse 24. So, so Felix, um, rather, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put him away. And then in verse 24, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Paul spoke about faith in Jesus. He, he spoke about Christ's righteousness and our need for it and God's judgment apart from it. Interestingly, the captive had a captive audience. And he just let the gospel do its work. And what I, what I want you to understand is that the gospel, the gospel is an offense. The gospel is an offense. The gospel, when it's presented plainly, we, we can just strip the, 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 all the stuff away. When the gospel is presented plainly, it says that people are unrighteous, that they can't do anything to become righteous, that there is one who is righteous, and he makes us righteous by faith alone. How do you think that plays out among a powerful Roman governor like Felix? Felix, you're a bad guy, and you can't do anything about it. What's Paul's message? He, he reasoned about faith in Christ, about righteousness, judgment, self-control. Felix, you're unrighteous, and you can't do anything about it. You think he was offended? How do you think that message plays out among self-sufficient, self-righteous Americans, the kind of folks we encounter? You're unrighteous. There's one who is righteous, but you can't do anything except trust in him for righteousness. It's offensive. And it's okay to let the gospel be an offense in fact, it's the best defense we have. It's, it's to let God work through the gospel in order to break folks down that he might raise them up with Christ. So let the gospel be an offense, but that doesn't mean that we should be offensive. I've said it many times. The gospel is an offense so that you don't have to be. 
Don't be a jerk. Don't go scorched earth. We're told that Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla. That word reason means to discuss something thoughtfully. Oh, what a lost art that is. Discuss something thoughtfully? Let's see, religion, politics, sports. No, I'm out on those. I can't do it. It seems that every conversation we have, if your conversations are like mine, every conversation I have seems to be a zero-sum game. There's no, there's no place for nuance. There's no place, in, no place for thoughtfully reasoning with someone. But Paul, because he knows the message is an offense, knows that he doesn't have to be offensive. He simply reasons with Felix and Drusilla about faith in Christ. Paul was winsome and wise, and we're called to be the same. To be winsome and wise, to speak plainly without flattery, to speak about the good news of Jesus so that, so that our lives truly bear hope. And that good news, it won't sound like good news to a lot of people, but to those who are being saved, it'll be the words of life. And, and so just remember, as we live as one caught in the middle, understand that flattery will not gain the world's favor as tempting, as enticing as it is. But the best defense that we have when we're confronted is the offense of the gospel to let the gospel do its work. And thirdly, liberty and worldly freedom are not the same. Liberty and worldly freedom aren't the same. As Christians, we are free. I believe that's the most glorious truth of the gospel. When you consider the ordo salutis, Latin phrase for the order of salvation, all that's encompassed in God's salvation is Romans 1.16 kind of salvation gospel. All the things that God does for us in Christ, predestination, election, effectual calling, union with Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification, of all of those things and all the benefits that flow from the gospel, I believe freedom is the most glorious. In John 8, Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. In Galatians 5, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Why has Christ set us free? Paul says he has set us free for that very thing, for freedom. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this. Under the gospel, in union with Christ, you are free. You're free from condemnation. You're free from the constraints of the law. You're free from the opinion of others. You're free from slavery to the flesh. You are free. And for far too long, you're free. Do not listen to messages that say you are free, but. They're no different than the Judaizers who said, yes, you're saved by faith in Jesus, but you need to be circumcised as well. No. You are free. Full stop, no buts. Paul Zoll, one of my favorite authors and uh, Episcopal priest, um, 
says that the, with, when it comes to the gospel, we dare not add any tonic, no mixers. It can only be served neat. That's it. You're free. No buts. Having said that, this is not a but, it's a however. Christian liberty, all that I've been describing, calling it gospel freedom, that is not the same as worldly freedom. There is a distinction. Free in Christ and free in this world are not the same thing. So I want you to notice how the chapter ends, and I mentioned it a moment ago. Paul was free in Christ. He was free because of the gospel. He even had some liberty of movement, according to verse 23. He was, he was permitted for his friends to visit him and have some, some freedom in that sense. If, if there was any biblical writer who understood gospel freedom, it was Paul. And yet, what we see is that Felix sent him away, and he remained in prison for two more years. Was Paul the most liberated person imaginable? I think so. Was Paul free? No. What, what I want to leave you with is that in this world where we are caught in the middle, we have to learn to live as free people while also living with the constraints of this fallen world. As Christians, and I'm particularly thinking of us in our context here in the United States, we have tremendous freedom. We have tremendous freedom, but that could change tomorrow. What won't change tomorrow is the freedom that we have in Christ under his gospel. And so we can recognize that duality, right? We can recognize that and learn to live with that so that we grow in our love for Jesus that we fix our eyes upon him, that we focus our life upon the gospel, that we let God glorify himself through us, and that we also learn to live as one who is free, but also in some sense bound, right? Just like Paul. Free in Christ, bound in this world, caught in the middle until Christ returns. This really is, is um, sort of a microcosm for Paul's life for the remainder of the next uh, four chapters. As his life plays itself out, this is what we find. Bound, yet free. Confident in the gospel. Looking forward to a hope in Christ. And I, and I pray that, that that's our hope. right? I, I know it can... Um, I don't think Jason mentioned, I was kind of zoned out when he was doing his confession of sin. Um, I don't think he mentioned anything about cultural events, but look, just this past week, a um, uh, Chinese pastor, uh, Early Rain Church, was uh, sentenced to nine years in prison. Of course, we all know um, the tensions that are going on with Iran and uh, all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a scary time we live in. It's a challenging time. How do we live in this fallen world with all of these things going on, our faith is solid so we can live authentic lives. We can be winsome and wise and let the gospel do its work, not try to do God's work for him. You know the difference between you and God? God doesn't think he's you. 
Right? That's, the, that's, that, that's the difference. You can let God do his work. Let him do his work. Let his gospel work. Be winsome and wise and navigate these waters of living as one who has tremendous freedom and at the same time is constrained. Let's pray for faith to live that way. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and mercy. I am grateful for the liberating power of the gospel. Lord, that it is not a halfway covenant, that it is not a, um, a yes but good news message. That when Christ gave his life on the cross, he spoke the words, to Telestai, it is finished. And we look forward to its consummation when Christ returns. And until that time, our lives, like Paul's, would you, would you give us the faith to live as salt and light, as winsome and wise, as people who have so much freedom, uh, freedom of spirit, but also freedom in this country, and at the same time, realizing that we can't fall in love with the things of this world. We mustn't give ourselves over to them. And we'll be mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who have it far harder than we do. We lift them up to you even now. Lord, we lift up to you the, the tensions that we face um, uh, knowing, as, as I, I know people personally who have family in Iran, knowing the tensions there, Lord, would you be at work that um, peace may reign, Lord, the good news may flourish in a difficult place there. Father, uh, us as believers, as we seek to, um, to live faithfully before you, would you dissuade us of any sort of Pollyanna-ish view of what it means to be a Christian, that we would recognize the challenges that are inherent? Recognize that, that, that we stand on solid footing, that we have a foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. And so, so strengthen our faith this day. Uh, strengthen our faith, faith our eyes, that our faith might become sight. And we ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.